Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This morning we'll be looking at Psalm 104. Psalm 104, as we continue our summer psalm series. And this summer we're focusing on what's called the Psalms of Praise. The Psalms of Praise. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 104. We'll read it in a second, but for now just notice how this psalm ends. It ends with the phrase, praise the Lord, which is really just one word in the Hebrew. You might have heard of it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So hallelujah in this psalm has the final word. And if this psalm has its way with us this morning, but if this psalm has its way with us in our life, this too will be the final word in our hearts. So let me just read this psalm and invite you to follow along. And then we'll pray and see what God has for us this morning. Psalm 104, this is God's word. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees are the Lord... The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. Living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. 
and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will give praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Lord, may our meditation this morning indeed be pleasing to you. For we rejoice in you. And if we don't, we long to rejoice in you. So Holy Spirit, would you indeed renew us this morning through your word? Would it accomplish what it set out to do, softening our hearts? And would we see Jesus? And would we sing of him during this time? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, so in the summer of 2003, two things happened to me to change my life forever. The first is that my small world got larger. I grew up in a small rural community in Indiana, and I had the opportunity to leave the country for a summer and to visit other parts of the world. And I learned that summer that there is more to the world than Muncie or Indiana or even the United States. My small world got bigger. The second thing that happened to me at the same time was that my God got much bigger. One of the things I brought with me in my travels was a small book by A.W. Tozer called The Attributes of God. And in it, Tozer says, there's no greater question in life than this. What is God like? And from the scriptures, he helps answer this essential questions with chapter titles like this. God is infinite. God is immense. God is good. God is just. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is omnipresent. God is imminent. God is holy. God is perfect. And so by the time I finished this book, everything was bigger. (laughs) Everything was bigger. My life was never the same, and here's why. In the words of J.B. Phillips, up until then, my understanding of God was too small. The God I worshipped up till then was not matching the God that we meet in Scripture. It was as if I was living at the foothills of like the Everest and only sort of stayed there and never looked up. Or I think about the life of my grandmother. Most of my life, I never asked her questions about her life. She was just grandma. I never got to know her story. I sort of reduced my grandmother to my experience of her. Do you know what I mean? But if I had simply sat down with her for coffee and asked her good questions, I would have learned about her amazing life. My view of my grandmother was too small. I think we all do this with God. Don't we? We reduce God down to our experience of God or our preconceived notions about who God is or what we want God to be like. Uh, But if the Bible is indeed God's self-disclosure, it's God's revelation. It's it's him basically sitting down with us and, and as John Calvin would say, speaking baby talk to us and explaining to us and and revealing himself to us, saying, I want you to know what I'm like. 
this is what I'm like. Because I want to have a relationship with you. I want to connect with you. This is God reaching out to you. And if we let God define God, I think we'll realize that too often our view of God was woefully small. And that's why I love, well, the Bible, but I love the Psalms right at the heart of the Bible. Why? Because they right-size God in our life. And they do this in two very important ways. Number one, they teach us about God. So they are indeed informational. They are, as some have put it, the Bible in miniature. They're like a comprehensive theology course. But number two, they teach us about God in poetic form. In the form of a song. So one author calls the Psalms an entire course of theology in prayer form. Isn't that amazing? See, the Psalms, they don't just teach us new facts about God or remind us about facts that we already knew about God. They do that. But they don't just do that. They go beyond this and they sort of integrate these truths into our hearts. As it's been said, the longest distance in the world is from the head to the heart. And the Psalms exist to take facts that we have in our head about God and to bring them down into our hearts. Integration. So Dr. Kurt Thompson, he's an expert on the brain. And he loves Jesus. And he talks about how God made our brains with two hemispheres. And many of you know this. One side majors on factual statements and one side, broadly speaking, majors on emotional states. And we've all sort of heard this before. But something I've never, ever considered is how important this is in our walks with Jesus. And how important this is to integrate both sides of these brains with our experience of the Lord. And so, so it's so important that integration happens between these two sides. And so Thompson writes, quoting, I suggest that those who organized the canon of Scripture knew what they were doing when they placed the Psalms in the center of the Bible. From the perspective of neuroscience, he goes on, this book is in the perfect symbolic position, pointing to the full integration of the mind as we bring together both language and facts about God, left hemisphere, and emotional states. Memories, experiences, right hemisphere, and the beauty of poetry. And so I like to suggest that if your God is too small, sing the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. And if you read the Psalms, read them out loud. This means folks at Starbucks are going to look at you funny. It's okay. Read them out loud to yourself. And do it slowly. See, your body is like the sound box of a guitar. The truths about God will resonate and reverberate in you, even as you read them. I was a literature major, and there's a very strong point to be made about how poetry is meant to be read. It's meant to be sung. And something is lost when we reduce poetry down to simply cogitating it in our brains. And so the Psalms are the same way. They're poetry. And your body is designed by God to reverberate this poetry. Whenever we sing songs, doesn't truths about God that you already know sometimes land on you? Exactly. God made you that way. Memories and experiences will rise as you read poetry of Scripture. Truths about God will like sort of stick to your ribcage instead of in one ear and out the other. 
God made your bodies and he made you to experience relationship with him with not just your minds, but with all of who you are. Okay, so as you do this, I want you to ask God to enlarge your heart and to therefore apprehend who God really is because there's nothing more urgent in our lives right now than to praise God as he is. This psalm says right at the beginning, if you take a look, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. It's a very important principle here. A small God makes for small praise. A great God makes for great praise. So if our God is too small, our praise also will be too small. But a great God makes for great praise. And that's what this psalm essentially sets out to do. To right-size God. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. To expose, I think, all the ways that we're prone to shrink God down. And as I read this, I thought it exposed three ways that we all, in this day and age, tend to reduce God down. To shrink God down. And I want to say it this way. We make our great God, we shrink him when we turn him into what I'll say is a utilitarian God. And number two, a life coach God. And number three, a distant God. And I want to talk about what I mean with all three of these. So first, a utilitarian God. The first way we shrink God is by turning him into a utilitarian. That's when something is, utilitarian means something is not just, uh, it's when something is only useful but hardly ever beautiful. When something is reduced down to whether it works or not. Uh, We might be tempted to view God this way, sort of drab, only concerned with utility. But as my Old Testament professor says, God goes beyond, like way beyond utility in this psalm. He makes things that are totally unnecessary in this psalm. We are reminded of that. They go way beyond what works into what is beautiful, to what is pleasurable, what is gratuitous even. In this psalm, as I read it aloud, I'm sure you can think of examples even in your own mind. But psalms, uh, the verses 10 through 18, I think especially describe things that don't need to exist. (laughs) So wild donkeys, for instance. Oil and wine are totally over-the-top necessary if we're just talking about nutrition. If we're just talking about survival, oil and wine, over-the-top. And then there's things in this section that, that grow and live in places that we don't even know about. Describes hills and valleys and mountains. And in those days, you have to understand, those are the places where that were uninhibited. And so this song, these ancient Israelites would sing this song and they would praise God for the things that lived in the places that they were not and that they had no experience of even. That is gratuitous. That is over the top. It's not utilitarian. And then there's in verse 26 
the Leviathan, which is not a hardcore band. It might be a hardcore band, but it's not what this is talking about. Most likely, this is a whale. A whale in the ocean. A sea creature that God made. Why? Just because he wanted to. I learned this week that, and I'm quoting here, scientists estimate that 91% of ocean species have yet to be classified. And that more than 80% of our ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. Isn't that humbling? That's an extravagant God. That is, a, that is not a utilitarian God that we worship. Uh, one scholar, Christopher Walken, says, quote, A gratuity is hardwired into the fabric of creation. A gratuity that makes unmissable one important truth about God's world. He has not created a modernist functional machine for living, but an excessive, lavish riot of color and diversity. To be sure, the world still functions, he goes on. But there is far too much richness and color and pleasure in creating for it to be merely about survival. Amen. Walken points out that the entire reason that we can do science, science, is because God made a world that works, that stays put, that's reliable, enough for us to study and understand. And we actually see this celebrated in this psalm. Verse 9 says, you set a boundary that they may not pass. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Verse 16, the trees are watered abundantly. There is an order, there is a stay-putness in creation. Enough for us to study it, enough for us to understand it, enough for us to sort of rely on it. I saw a lot of houses sort of peppered across the shoreline of a lake this last week. They're counting on the fact that that lake is staying put, at least for a while. Our world is not chaotic, in other words. And I think we take this for granted, but it's not a given. Uh, next time you go to class, any of you students out there, the next time you research something, the next time you reference the periodic table. Next time you fly in an airplane, you know, that depends on air molecules doing what air molecules do. Praise God using this psalm. And so, yes, on the one hand, God made this world functional. We celebrate that with this. But as Walken points out, God made also the world beautiful. Beauty that goes beyond function. And let's praise God for this, who makes good things. Things that work and things that are lovely. We shrink God down when we make God into a utilitarian God. And how fitting is it that we're worshiping outside? We have some kind of uh, sermon illustration, even as I preach, about the lavish character of God. He's bigger than you think. Number two, the second way I think we shrink God's greatness is by making him into a life coach. Now, let me just say, I'm all about good therapy. I'm all about good counseling. And I suppose I'm all about good life coaching. (laughs) 
But if you Google life coach, the first thing you see, at least in my algorithm, is uh, find a life coach to fit your life. That's good news. Live streamers, a, a food truck just drove by. Right into our worship space. That's lavish, okay? So a life coach God is when God exists to, yeah, fit in your life. Fit in your life. A God who exists sort of in us to serve our changing needs and wants. And whenever this God tells us something that we don't like, we, we, can, we can fire this God and we can hire a new one of our own making. But the God that we sing about in this psalm is a royal creator. The king of all and the creator of all. So first, God is a creator of all. This entire psalm uh, really is a celebration of God as creator. In fact, many scholars point out that this psalm was written on purpose to remind us of the creation week in Genesis. And so you have day one with light, verse two. You have day two, the divided waters, that's verses two through four. If you take a look, you have day three, that's land and water, verses five through 13. And then you have the trees and plants, verses 14 through 19. And then you have day four, the sun and the moon, that's verses 19 through 24. And then you have day five, the sea creatures, verses 25 and 26. That's where we find the Leviathan. And then the creatures of the sixth day, including humans, verses 21 through 24. In other words, there is a hard line that this psalm is singing about between creator and creation. And we are a part of creation. He made it all, and he is not created. But God's not just creator of all, he's king of all. And that's what it means in verse 1, to be clothed in splendor and majesty. Those two words combined in scripture, whenever they come out, they're always talking about royalty. And so the psalmist is saying, God is not just creator, he's also king over all. He didn't just make it all, he rules it all. And we're subject to him. He is the cosmic king, and we don't get a vote. (laughs) I think this also explains what I'll call the fingernail on the chalkboard verses in this psalm as well. It's like we're kind of in the Garden of Eden until we hit verse 29. When you hide your face, they're dismayed, and when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And we're kind of like, what? Where did that come from? And then in verse 35 talks about sin and wickedness having no place in this garden i remember backpacking in the sierra nevada and there was not another human within a mile radius at any given time when we were in the high country so it's tempting to think this is like the one untouched place of beauty in the whole world an eden But every so often we would see a snicker wrapper on the trail. (laughs) I have to tell you, it shocks you. It shocks you. It wakes you up. It just doesn't belong. And that's what this song is meant to do to you. It will remind you that God is creator and that God is king and that God makes good stuff. But something is wrong. This theater of God's glory, this theater of God's beauty, this lavish display of God's both functional but beautiful creation has been in a way vandalized by sin and by death. 
which only makes sense if God is not just creator of all, but ruler of all, right? Sin is rebellion against God the King. And that is no small thing. And singing this psalm over and over again will indeed remind you of that. God is not a for-hire life coach, is he? God is God, and we are not. God is holy. He's creator. He's king. And too often, I think we reduce God down to a, a kind of nondescript deity who must give us an account instead of the other way around. When you sing this psalm, you are reminded that God is God. God is holy. And this is, this is a big deal. And sin and wickedness are a big deal. They're no small thing. And I think we come to the third way that we shrink God then. God is a royal king, yes. But I think this opposite mistake is that we, we, which also makes God small, is when we reduce God to being a distant God who is uninvolved in our lives and in the world that he made. So I think often those of you who respect God's, God's kingship will struggle here. He becomes so totally distant, a sort of reclusive, angry craftsman. Yeah, who makes good things but hides out in a shed, grumbling that you're using his stuff or messing it up. Uh, but the image that we get in this psalm, you know, God's not that small. It's not a distant creator God, but an involved creator God who loves his creation so much, including his image bearers, you and I, that he nearly plays in it. In fact, take a look at the footnote in verse 26. If your Bible has a footnote, one of my favorite footnotes, there goes the ships and Leviathan. Again, a big whale, which you formed to play in it. Footnote, which you formed to play with. He doesn't merge with creation. That's pantheism. But neither is he utterly absent from it. That's deism. He is so intimate with his creation. It says in this psalm, he rides the wind. It says in this psalm, he makes the grass grow. He plants trees. He provides food to all creatures, us included. God is so involved in his creation. Verse 29 would remind us that even our breath, even our breath is held in his hands. I remember, I remember when my middle son was on a ventilator and then a CPAP and then oxygen and I was reminded how fragile breath itself was it is not a given and it was tempting because of the technology to think that we are in charge of our own breath because of this technology but the ultimate truth is and I learned this with my dad last in his passing last year who also was on a ventilator that ultimately God holds our breath In his hand. And here's the point. God doesn't just make stuff and step away. He's involved in his stuff. He's not distant. As one scholar puts it, he's intimate yet regal. Hang on to that phrase. Intimate yet regal. This phrase perfectly describes Jesus. 
intimate. He took on flesh. Regal, king of all creation. Intimate, he entered the story that he is writing, that God is writing, who rebuked the waves as this psalm describes himself because he's so regal and yet lived among us. And he was crucified on the very wood that he brought in to being, regal and intimate both. God is involved in your life. Eugene Peterson has a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, which itself is a line from the Christian poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. And in it, he writes, quote, God's great love and purposes for us are all worked out where? In messes, in our kitchens, our backyards, in storms, in sins, blue skies, the daily work and dreams of our common lives. And some of us, I'm afraid, have shrunk God into a distant deity who's uninvolved in the everyday life that we live. But sing this song for a while and your vision of God, will, this vision will start to crumble away and your God will become great again and you will praise him. And others of you have shrunk God into a cruel deity who might be involved, maybe, but only in cruel ways. This passage reminds us that God is deeply gracious. Everything is a gift. In fact, the name of God here is not generic L, which you would see sometimes, but Yahweh, which was a special covenant name that God gave to his people. To sing of Yahweh is to stand in grace. Because this, everybody who sang this song understood that they too were sinners. They too were wicked. And that their wickedness would consume them from the land. But Yahweh made it possible for them and for us to dwell in this good creation and to sing praise to the Creator God. Intimate and regal. His kingship drawing near is not something we are fearful of because we indeed are His. How did He make that happen? It's Jesus. He was consumed in our place. He took on our sins, our wickedness. Jesus, who so longs to refurbish his vandalized creation and his vandalized image bearers and vandalizing image bearers, that he would die in our place and be raised for our justification so that we could live in this creation again and even into the new creation with praise. This is the great God of the Bible. Let's not reduce him, shrink him, misdefine him as anything less. In closing, just a few thoughts. I, I don't think many of us believe in our minds that God are these things, utilitarian, life coachy, distant. I think most of us understand in our brains that God is different than that. But too often, don't we have, like functionally approach God in these ways? Doesn't our life tell a different story? We sort of default to these ideas. And we relate to God in these ways, even as we believe differently. And it's a tragedy. It robs us of two things. It well, robs God of his praise, but it also robs us of our joy. If we were made to make much of God, if we were sort of if we're most alive when we are in awe of God, then seeing God for who he is is critical to our joy. Do you see? 
praise is a gift that God gives us. When it says hallelujah at the very end, we ought to see that as an extension of a gift. Praise the Lord. That is something that I'm giving you that you can do. I freed you to make much of me, God is saying. I've done everything, including the death of my very own son, in order that you would praise me. The giving of the Holy Spirit in order that you would praise me. These are things that are, are, are gifts to us. So I would encourage you. Sing about his greatness, even when you don't feel like it. Verse 33, actually, in this text, tells us that meditation in the biblical worldview takes often the form of singing. When we sing in a moment here, when John leads us in singing, consider it meditation in a way. Where your mind and your heart are being integrated in a way that only singing can do and in a way that only poetry can do. Because as we sing, we take the truth about God into our hearts. If you're in the sciences out there, I know some of you are, please see your work as a meditation on the great works and the greatness of God. This psalm really grounds the enterprise of science, if you think about it. If you're in the arts, please see your work as a meditation uh, on the works and the greatness of God. This psalm grounds the enterprise of art as well. I'll never forget when I heard uh, the artist, the Christian artist, uh, Makoto Fujimura, compare his art to Mary, who poured her life savings on Jesus' feet. There's a sort of wastefulness to that, isn't there? And the disciples grumble. There's a gratuitousness to this. But Jesus accepts it, loves it, because it reflects his heart. And so when our art is not merely functional, but, but beautiful, we are close to the heartbeat of God. And then no matter who you are, rejoice in God's creation as much as he does. And so I do want to leave you with that. If you look at verse 31, verse 31 tells us surprising truth. May the glory of our Lord endure forever, and may the Lord rejoice in his works. Do you know that when you rejoice in him, and when you rejoice in his works, he beats you to it? Do you know that the Lord sings over his people? Do you know that the Lord rejoices even over you, and even over this? And may our rejoicing bring in praise, yes. And may he be great. And may it create in us the joy he made us for. So Lord, we do ask that. We ask that you would create in us the miracle of praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.